if you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. At Horse Chats today, we've got Catherine Chrisley Shriver from Dharma Horseback, and she's going to talk to us about rescuing horses. Before we do that, though, I'd just like to remind you that International Horse College, have a look, internationalhorsecollege.com, with a mission to improve the welfare of horses around the world through the safe education of the riders, handlers and trainers. International Horse College has been very thorough in the selection of their courses for a wide variety of people who are already working or preparing to work in the horse industry. Sometimes just want to have a bit more information about the care of horses as well. So for more information about these accredited courses, go to internationalhorsecollege.com. So we talk about the welfare of horses, and that's why I'm very happy to have Catherine here from Dharma Horse. Catherine, you've come heaps of times before. Any particular reason why you've chosen this particular subject? I mean, I know it's exactly what you do. Because what I'd like you to do, and this is something that I've, you know, talked about often, is to define rescue. Okay. Yes. Now, I, I'll tell you why, because, well, two things. I'll give you two examples. Um, for a while ago, there was a conversation on Facebook. It's since been deleted because it obviously it was a little bit too personal. Someone had posted a photo of their rescue horse uh, a couple of days later. You know, lots of comments. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, you look so happy. And, you know, the things that you always want to get, the type of comments that you always want to get until the person who sold the horse found out said what do you mean I sold the horse it was never sold as a rescue the horse was happy here I just needed to you know I didn't have the time for him I need to move him on so Uh but so there's that and there's also uh someone who runs a local rescue and they go to the horse sales and the type of horse sales that maybe someone from the meat works is at okay Uh buying buying Uh cheap cheap meat for dog food um but they buy a horse just regular bidding at auction. They purchase a horse. They put a post up on Facebook, you know, such and such a horse for sale. Now, they've just got it through the yards at the horse sale. You can see the background of the horse sale. And then meanwhile, they're advertising it straight away. Well, to me, that's just a horse dealer. It's not a rescue at all. Uh So I don't know. Can you speak a little bit about that and define what is a rescue horse? Okay. Yeah. And this is you're hitting a nerve in me too, because we work so hard as a sanctuary. And when we rescue a horse, it usually spends its entire life here in sanctuary. And that means we have like 30 and 40 year old horses. And we had a 40 year old mule, 40 some year old, and they live out their life when the quality of life isn't good. They're euthanized. We provide that for them. We have occasionally adopted out some horses, but it's after they've been here for years and we found a situation where they could be better, not cared for, but in a better situation we can provide. They needed a person. They needed, you know, more energy from someone than we had available. Sometimes, you know, it's a limited bandwidth for those who are running a sanctuary and horses that could be ridden and and go on and have a a career and have a life and be part of a family. They deserve that if the right people can be found. Yep. But they were here for years to be brought into good health, to make sure that we knew about them, that we understood them. We knew them intimately and could find what was right for them. To me, anyone who, and it happens here a lot, anyone who goes and picks up half a dozen horses off of a sale lot and they bring them home. They, you know, put them not even necessarily in quarantine. They just put them somewhere and then put them up for adoption within a matter of days. Just like you said, that's a dealer. They are, it's okay, find homes for horses. But by calling them rescues, there is a sense of ego involved. There's a sense of I enjoyed this. I rescued this horse. This horse is going to have a life because I went and grabbed him and they send them on. There's no way on earth they know 
how emotionally battered the horse might be, how physically compromised that horse might be. They won't have any information to put forth for this person who is technically buying, or if they say adopting, whatever the horse is taken into a family. That's the person that ends up rescuing, so to speak. That's the the person who ends up giving the home for life because any horse that comes into our life, it is a commitment to care for life. And the person that takes that on, they'll be taking a horse with this unknown background, with these varied circumstances. And a real rescue, a real sanctuary, some um, organization or institute that is working hard on behalf of the horses is going to keep a horse long enough to know them, long enough to heal them, long enough to send them forward if they adopt out with a background of information that the new owner or adopter takes in and can work from that. Otherwise, you know, it's like it's like going down to the store and, and buying a whole lot of bread and then you have more bread than you need and you sell your neighbor some bread. It It's... It's a, it's a frustration. It's a commitment to care for life. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And we know that is for all of us when we bring a horse into our life. That doesn't necessarily mean that we keep them for life, which we hope that we do, but circumstances can happen and everybody gets caught sometimes. But that commitment for their care for life means you find someone who will take over that care for the rest of their life and a rescue does that they find others that will take that horse on and a really really good rescue will have a contract that says if this adopter can no longer keep this horse it is uh, surrendered or it is given back to the rescue that it doesn't just go on out in the world and no one knows what happened to it and you know those are contracts that should be honored and I do know that sometimes they aren't and a lot of drama gets involved but if you are choosing your adopters and you're you know really vetting them you're taking care to make sure it's the right circumstance for the horse and they are um, they have this integrity that they will return the horse if they can't provide care then you're really a rescue and then you're really looking out for the well-being of that horse it's not just about me and what I've done it's about what this horse needs and how I can be a tool in that process to make things right for that horse. Or I can be an advocate. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we talk about Dharma Horse Century, and you've been on quite a few times and talked about a variety of things. And if people would like to go back and just go to horsechats.com and search for Dharma Horse or Catherine or, you know, whatever. But um, you've got Dharma Horse Sanctuary. Now, I noticed you didn't call it Dharma Horse rescue farm or something right, or else. Right. Tell us the difference, you know, a rescue versus a sanctuary, you know, just define that for us. Yeah, and it, it's pretty clear-cut in our mind, and for most who will use the term, some are rescue and sanctuary, but we get horses. It's just sort of our, our thing. You, you If you venture into this sort of um, strange world that we're in and it's wonderful but it is odd um if you choose the sanctuary route that you're going to take these horses in and take care of them for life you have this criteria and for us it's um horses in need horses uh who need the care either because of their emotional past or their physical past these horses are very elderly most of them they are compromised in one way or another, the vet care and the, the daily care and the nutrition, the nutrition and the herbal care and the things that they need are so specific to what we do. And when we have had a horse that blossoms out of the circumstances that made him or her what they were when they came here, and it's as if this sort of overall healing has occurred that's when a horse becomes possibly adoptable. We never advertise a horse as up for adoption. 
we just have situations where people will call and ask and they'll say, do you have any horses for adoption? And I said, well, not really. We're a sanctuary. Most of them stay here the rest of their lives. What are you looking for? Yeah. What are, yeah. What are your plans for this horse? Do you have a facility? Are you, you know, a, a lifelong horseman, you know, kind of find out about them. And several times it has been just a matchup for a horse that we were going, yeah, it'd be good if, like Diamond, it would be great if Diamond had his own person. And this sweet gelding who his ring bone had set, his legs had stabilized. Um, he loved uh, the girls when we, we were able to have programs, you know, before COVID. He loved the girls grooming on him and being with him. And he just was an attention, you know, fiend. And he wasn't getting that. And then we realized that this was a situation and it did work this lovely family with this young girl, and I forget how old she is. She's, she's quite young and quite wonderful. They hit it off. They are bonded. And they know if they can't take care of him, he comes back here. Yes. That's a real adoption. Yep. And that's not what we normally do. We are a sanctuary, and there are so many wonderful rescues um, that are like with the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, a lot of the um, organizations that certify, verify, um, vouch for an organization. There are a lot of rescues and they will have 70 horses, 100 horses, more than we can manage at one time. Um, but they're working with them to find adopters and they're really saving the horses. They're truly rescuing the horses. And I dare say that these really good ones, these really, that, that do this in integrity, that the horses stay there a while before they go out. Even if a horse comes in with a, a lot of training and, and they're feeling good about this horse could go on, they've rescued him from who knows what, um, they're going to spend the time to know him because they don't want to send them out and have them compromised again emotionally or physically. And they don't want them to have to come back. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's important. So I want to ask you what you do if you're taking on just, you know, say one horse to rehabilitate. What do you do? And if someone else is out there and they've got an opportunity where they can take on a horse, you know, what, what is it? Tell us a bit more about when you take on a horse to rehabilitate. Right. And a lot of times... Um, Sometimes people can foster a horse for a rescue or a sanctuary. So they're essentially taking on a horse to rehab, to rehabilitate and to help. And that can help the, the rescue or the sanctuary, just like donations and things. People can work to help one horse. And that's a big deal. That's a very noble and, and wonderful thing to do. If you're going to do that, you've got to take a look realistically at, let's say, let's start with the basics, like your facilities. If um, you have this wonderful setup, but it's a lot of very visible electric fence, you're not going to take in a Mustang that's come off the range because it's not going to hold him. And if you have, you know, very um, swampy ground that gets real poached all the time, you're going to want to ask yourself if you can do something to improve that before you bring the horse. I mean, a list that you can make up in your own mind about how can I serve this horse best. And you want to do that on that individual basis. Um, if you've got a, a young horse that's still a stallion, you've got to factor in that you're going to gild. You've got to castrate that horse. We have enough stallions in the world and we don't need to be breeding and making more horses. And a stallion is a big chunk to bite off and to care for and to handle. So you're going down through this list of what you think you can personally care for and what you have the, the background, the knowledge, are you willing to learn? Are you going to be in touch with this rescue or this sanctuary where you're helping this horse out or you have found a horse that perhaps was confiscated by authorities and the horse is needing a home if the horse was confiscated, if this was a seizure, this horse is in some kind of bad way, probably physically, probably starved, probably injured. 
realistically look at what you will be able to handle to take care of this horse. If you just take on one, then you will be able to focus on that. And you can learn a lot in the process if you're open to researching and if you're going to you know, connect with other horsemen and with sanctuaries and rescues that can give you, you know, really good, useful information. But if you just on a whim decide that you want to rescue a horse, it can be so much, you bite off so much to chew that later you end up such a bad taste in your mouth and you're not wanting to ever try it again and you will not feel good about the whole situation and you know, for absolute certain, the horse is not going to feel good about it. Because it's more than just horse care, isn't it? It's more like extraordinary care, like you need more than just caring for a horse. Tell us a little bit about the extra and give us some examples of extraordinary care, you know, things that horses need because they're all individuals. They all are, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're all individuals for their horse care, but tell us a bit more about the extras that they need. Yeah, the horses that come to us really require extraordinary care. And we're talking the facility, the feed, um, veterinary care, the farrier. It can be one or two or all of those. A perfect example quickly is Vega, who passed over last year. He was 42. He had no molars. He he was going to be killed, and we took him on at age 35. And so we had seven great years with him. But he had no teeth, and he was vibrantly healthy as having been an athlete, but he had no teeth, so we had to chop. We hooked up with the tractor. We got this thing called a a grinder mixer thing, and we chopped all the hay for him, which uh, meant every couple of weeks chopping a 1,000 pounds of hay or whatever it was, um, soaking it twice a day, taking that, you know, ground up hay, putting it in a tub, soaking it, putting all of his supplements, all of his things in there, which he needs a lot of. We had to really maintain him um, at that age and dedication to it. I don't care if it was, you know, 10 degrees below zero, we'd have to get hot water for it. If it was blistering hot in the summer, if we didn't feel good, if, you know, the list is long, that still had to be done. That's extraordinary care that was necessary to keep him alive. So he was that one example. And with the horses that come in with uh, something wrong with their hooves, we've had many founder uh, laminitis cases that have have been in our care. Um, There needs to be quick veterinary and farrier care. And, you know, everything has to work together. Um, We take on a horse, any of us, we have to realize that the vet bills, the strange hooves and the strange arthritis and the, like our little Mustang colt we've taken most recently with the healed up broken leg. We need radiographs. We have to x-ray. And then we have to x-ray later for changes and, you know, see how things are going. We need really good hoof trimmers, really good farriers. And, you know, these things, as they pile up on each other, can become complicated. But you for the benefit of the horse, for that horse's sake, you follow the path and you keep getting the best you can from the professionals and doing the best you can, you know, with your own knowledge and your own instincts, which have to kick in a lot of the time. Um, Just the feeding of so many different horses. Right now, we have, of course, a lot more than one horse, but if you have one horse, you're gonna be thinking about, is he too thin, is he too fat, what does he need, she need? We've had to divide our track system once again to put the chubbies because when we opened it all back up again, they were, you know, kind of raiding the other horses. (laughs) And they not only they they had lost some weight, but they just gained it right back and we had to divide it up again. And so you feel like, well, I'm being quite cruel. They see me feeding the other horses alfalfa (laughs) and they're not getting it. They're just getting grass. But it's not cruel. It isn't even emotionally cruel. It is the kindness because being too fat can be just as detrimental as being too thin. And some sense of what direction that's going is necessary. So we bring in a horse to most likely a horse to rescue, to heal and take care of. Most likely they're going to be too thin. 
So you have to have this really clear and proven way to safely refeed them. And there's a really wonderful one because we get odd horses. We've gotten horses that no one thought would live. Even veterinarians didn't think would live because they were so starved. And there's a refeeding program for starved horses from the UC Davis, the University of California at Davis. Okay, yep. And this is, this is what we use. And it's little amounts of high-quality alfalfa hay, and you feed it like six, eight times through the day, just like a pound. But you're only feeding like that six or eight pounds, depending on the size of the horse, through the day. And then you're beginning to increase it on about the fourth day. And then you begin to do more amounts of the alfalfa hay, but less frequent times so that you do this over 10 days so that you have like a, a, the horse is beginning to recover and then you can start feeding some grass hay. But the one thing that you don't do, and this is really important for people to know, is you don't start feeding grains. Mm. You cannot feed grains, not even supplements at first because, Glennis, it can kill a horse. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yes, it, yep. Yes, yep. it can. And they, their metabolism, it will push them metabolic, it will cause um, this carbohydrate overload that this starved horse cannot possibly handle. And that's tricky, isn't it? Because people think they're doing the right thing. You know, I've got this horse and I'm just going to give him as much as what he can eat and he'll be in heaven. And yeah, no, it can can be awful. So you've got to understand the requirements, the physical requirements on that physical condition of the horse. Yeah, exactly. They're glitchy enough in good health, Mm. you know, with the changes of weather and things, their digestion, when they're recovering, it absolutely has to be this sort of system that brings their health back and brings their strength back. I think that many times the starved horse comes in and, oh, he just didn't make it. But if people piled a bunch of grain or sweet feed or processed feeds in front of him, yeah. He didn't he didn't make it because he got that carbohydrate overload. And yeah, it's hard. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot off the press notification. That is that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, If you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book imagine maybe one day you could be a guest on horse chats what about the you know like we've talked about the physical and i understand that and and often comes probably more often thinner than fatter but um the emotional condition of the horse. I'm sure you've had some, and actually you've talked about problems emotionally not just the emotional condition of the horse but the emotional requirements to help the horse. Tell us a little bit about so often they've they've been traumatized at some point um some brutally a lot of times horses are seizures because they have been treated brutally they are so shut down a lot of times that they seem real tractable and this is something I mean we've all been there where a horse is a little thin and they get some weight and some exercise and they become a whole lot perkier horse but this can be, you know, exacerbated in the horse that um, was so traumatized that he's so shut down that he's not even cognizant of what's going on around him. And when he begins to feel better and he begins to have less hypervigilance, less building that wall around him to protect himself, when he becomes his own true self, sometimes it's more than we thought. It's more than we were prepared to handle. And I think that can really happen with... Um, like the the neophyte, the person who has not done this a lot or done this before, bringing a horse in to save them. And gosh, you know, it's just the, the best intention in the world. 
And it certainly can be done, but the education needs to back it up. There needs to be the education behind it for those expectations. The emotionally traumatized horse needs, we've talked about it so much, needs that consistency. They become comfortable when they know what you want, they give you what you want, and they are rewarded or they are put at ease because of that. And it can take a long time with some, a short time with others. They're just like people. But there, there isn't a horse, even a horse that's been starved. They have had physical you know, problems. Physical condition has been a problem for them. And they've been starved. That in itself is an emotional battering to not have food. So that's an emotional condition as well that we have to, to take into account. The horse that we, you know, one of like horses I've raised, I've raised horses from birth. They know me. They know they're going to get fed. They know that they're not going to get brutalized. They have this confidence. If a horse gets out of someone's hands that has that kind of confidence and they're put in a situation where they're brutalized and they're not fed and they're suffering remarkably, those are the ones that sometimes come around so quickly because they recognize the kindness, they recognize their needs being met, and it's like they go, whew, I'm back where I belong. Those will be the horses that often come around and they're adoptable because they had this really good past. Yep. And it shines back out of them because they recognize it. What about you talked earlier, you know, about people getting a horse and doing it on a whim and is that like adrenaline and the excitement and everything else? You know, what can you say about that? Because, you know, I know, and it's not just like, oh, we're at the pet shop, we've just got to get another guinea pig or something like that. It's a bit more and it's certainly more getting a horse, but getting a rescue horse is even more. So tell us about that and and almost warn us against it, you know, because there's got to be a warning there somewhere. Yeah. And- I understand so totally. I have had that that feeling. It's that excitement and that adrenaline that pumps in when you're saving someone, you know, any animal, another person. But when you get into this, you're going to rescue this horse or you're at a a sale. People go to sales and and they call it rescuing. They're, They're buying at the sale so they won't go to the killer buyers. And they're so excited because I've saved this horse's life. It's like this big old snowball rolling along and that excitement that is more connecting to that. They're more connected to that feeling than they actually are to the long-term commitment to that yes. horse. Yes, yes, okay. And, okay. Uh-huh. and yeah. I really understand it, but it's something to temper because it can often happen, and we've seen it, um, people end up in kind of hoarding situations where they love the idea of rescuing and they are taking in horse after horse and figuring, you know, I can make his life better than it was. But I say, can you make this horse's life impeccable? Can you meet every need? Can you commit to this for that horse's life? Because just the excitement that you feel in having saved his life and the release and the peace that he feels and finally having somewhere to live and having the food and water that he needs and all those things. If you can't prolong that, you know, in perpetuity for as long as this horse is alive or assure that someone else that takes him on can do that, it's not necessarily a favor. And I don't think horses should be uh, slaughtered and I don't think horses should be uh, neglected. And I, I don't think horses should be left in a situation. I think they all, all horses deserve to be cherished and to be cared for and to be nourished. We need to have a society that recognizes that, that supports those that really are doing it and have the education and the experience to bring it around and to teach people that there are plenty of horses already out there to not keep breeding more and more of them if you don't have buyers, uh, people who will take these horses on. You don't just create them to use them up, and if they didn't work out, discard them. You commit to their well-being. And hoarding cases start with the 
best intentions, and they're called that because people get more horses than they can take care of. Mm. That becomes a bit of a problem, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And I have some horses that have, I, Dharma horse, I think of me as Dharma horse sometimes. (laughs) Uh, We have some horses that um, have come from situations like that, well-intended, loving people that it got out of hand and they couldn't manage it. And it is with the, the best of intentions that it can happen. But there has to be there have to be things in place where we all begin to recognize that we can do better than we have been doing. I will get calls. I think I've told you that I will get like five to seven to ten calls in a week of people needing to place a horse. And I do the best I can to find, you know, other ways, uh, maybe find someone that can buy the horse or they can give the horse to that's looking for one for a home and that sounds right. I do everything I possibly can for the horse. But if we took them all on, if we decided, okay, we'll just take them all into sanctuary, you know, mm, five horses a week, we would be in so much trouble. We have to stay dedicated to the ones we have because their well-being has to be our priority everything is is designed around that for them because we take on that commitment for life of course and when they pass over there's room there's you know sad sad as it is but also there's some room for someone else so that's how we have to do it well otherwise you'd end up just economically economically you couldn't afford mm-hmm. to take in on all so you'd cut down on horses speed and then the horses would be starving and then they'd end up looking for another rescue you know you've got yes. to do it and even though you're you know charity you've still got to run it like a business so you can continue yes. to do the work that you do exactly yeah. yeah you know we talked about people think oh, i'll just give this horse whatever he needs and and he can just have as much food as what he wants and how do we safely refeed the staffed horse? You know, what do we do? What do you do with um, the system you get? If you find a staffed horse or you, you're given a staffed horse, you can take it in. What system do you use? What, you know? Um, we, we do work that UC Davis refeeding program with the alfalfa. It's been real clear, real clean, made everybody come around. Gita, the, the mare that was blind and starved, nearly to death, was near death, Uh, that program brought her back. And in that 10 days, she was on some grass hay. And we don't feed composite fees. We make the bran mashes and we put the herbs and things in them and the um, flaxseed meal and the different things for their health. But you can't hit them with that all at once. So after that 10-day period, we began to add the grass hay. And we think, (laughs) except for the, the chubby horses on the track part, We think uh, free choice. The grass hay is their grazing. And like you and I have talked before, we're in the high desert. We don't have pasture. There's no way. So that's like our... And and you know what, Glennis, in some ways that has been an advantage with these horses we get in uh, with laminitic changes with... um, They have foundered. They're having these different problems. Uh, The fact that, that we don't have pasture, I finally see it as an advantage. Other people are talking making a dry lot, and I'm thinking... Oh, we're just a dry lot. <laughs> but we do have the grass haze, and, you know, that's always according to what, what we can find that's of quality. And we try to always have two kinds, like Timothy and Bermuda. Right now it's Teff and Bermuda because that's what we've been able to get. But we begin to add that. And for her, it was just one of those slow feed nets full of the hay, and we just refill it after she eats. And what that does is that alfalfa that you're first feeding, it has a buffering effect. So the horse that's been stressed physically and emotionally, maybe having ulcers or the digestive disturbance that can bring on the ulcers, that buffering effect of the alfalfa and the calcium in it is helping to alleviate that. At least you're not adding to the problem. And then as we start to add the grass and they're eating uh, consistently that 24-7 kind of grazing on the grass hay, um, we're beginning to bring them back to a place where they feel like a horse again, where they are doing the normal things. The mashes can introduce all the herbs that we need. And each horse, of course, is different. The ones that come in and they have been so 
overwhelmed and I think perhaps, you know, I'm seeing like their liver, I might do a liver cleanse, they'll get the milk thistle or dandelion or burdock or one of the liver supportive herbs. And another horse will come in and this is something I'll do, which is not, it, it's animal based, but if I'm having eye trouble, I will feed cod liver oil. And I know, you know, it goes contrary to what I say is, you know, don't feed horses animal products. But sometimes to get that absorbable vitamin A and D in them, um, I can have some success with helping, you know, with their eyesight. And I'll do that and um, homeopathics and herbs for the eyesight, like eyebright herb. Each one is going to get that kind of individual herb that they need. And the whole herd gets the, the fenugreek and the anise and the cinnamon and the things that are just going to really support them. Course, they always get the the flaxseed meal, and by introducing that and bringing it in slowly, we get this vibrant health in all of them, and we never have to feed grains. We're not working these horses; they're not, you know, um, galloping around on a track or you know jumping courses or something. If they go off to a family, if they got adopted out and they start working harder, then yes, you know, some rolled barley and things that they might need to add, but not here. And by Doing this refeeding and doing this consistent, very healthy, non-toxic, I hate to use the word, but non-toxic feed program, I find a big old mass of molasses and corn and oats and all these things mixed together that smell so good and I'd like to eat it and the horses absolutely love it and you're making them so happy. I find that it's kind of a toxic feed because while it seems very appealing, it's going to have consequences that are hard to deal with. And you've got to know each horse. We had an HYPP mare um, with a muscle disorder, a quarter horse, and she can't have potassium. Okay. She's, she's since passed over. But with your vet and figuring everything out, then you get to know these things. And so you watch. You don't supplement something that has high potassium. Uh, you don't feed her alfalfa. But we have other horses that have to have alfalfa. You see what I'm saying? It's just a, it's a roller coaster. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. There was something, you know, and this is probably to do more with emotional than feeding, but I know even the most experienced competition horse who's at a different place, sleeps at a different place, you know, every weekend they're out at a different thing, they still there's that little bit of a worriness when they first get out of the horse truck or the float or whatever and look around, you know, their their heart rate increases a bit. And, and, and you know, if they've had good experiences, they settle down. There's still that little bit of a worry. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. that a rescue horse, you know, to make them feel safe. I'm sure you've got some horrific stories because, you know, horses go to a new place and if they're worried, they just go straight through fences. They panic. They mm. throw themselves around. What can we do to make a horse, especially a traumatised horse, what can we do to make them feel safe? Lots of things. And what's difficult sometimes because as a sanctuary with a lot of horses, anyone who comes in new has to be quarantined, of course. And, you know, that's... 10, 14 days, depending on what the circumstances, maybe 30 days. So they've got to be kept by themselves. And we have to have protocols uh, where we're sterilizing equipment and ourselves and everything. Well, um, that could be so hard on a horse because they're a herd animal and, and they need to see other horses. So we make sure that even though they're not near the other horses, they can always see them and see what's going on. And we try to keep things very low key. I told you we can play the classical music. I can take, I'll take essential oil of lavender and I'll sprinkle it around the feeder and around, you know, under the roof and things to help this be a soothing experience. Because to feel safe, they have to feel that they're not being threatened. And the other horses in a herd make everybody feel like they're watching out for each other. As quickly as I can, I, I hope the horse feels, I try to make the horse feel that I'm watching out for you. Mm -hmm. Yep. And anything seems awry, I come, I talk them through, I am there for them, even sometimes horses that don't want me to touch them. Uh, it took a while with Joe for him to feel confident. But then we got a, a backstory on Joe that his best friend had died and he quit eating. And, you know, we didn't know any of this when we got him. And so 
the more you can know or you can sort of intuitively feel from them, you see how they they can be soothed if possible. And just our attitudes, they will tell you things. Um, a horse that reacts, if they smell like beer on somebody, mm-hmm. maybe someone abused them who drank beer, right? If they see a man, you know, in a, a black hat, maybe someone had abused them and had a black hat on, they're starting to react in some way. I'll look really quick at what I have on or, you know, I'm vegetarian, trying so hard off and on to be vegan, but I'm vegetarian. So I know they're never smelling like a hamburger or something yeah, on me yeah. to, to give them that kind of pause. What What is she? But even that, see, even that, if they're smelling a lot of, of meat on someone or you're out barbecuing right next to them, they're smelling, it can, it can be disconcerting. And depending on their past experiences, it can be traumatizing. But the whole thing, like I said before about fences, if you're bringing a, a Mustang, you've adopted a Mustang that was um, captured, sadly, and, and traumatized and brought to you and unloaded, you want really strong, safe fences and a, a small enough area where you're hopefully quarantining um, that you'll be able to interact with the horse, not just turn him out on 40 acres and never see him again. And fences on a A small space need to be very sturdy, very safe, nothing protruding, everything covered. Um, The the kind of thing that if somehow he gets himself, you know, in trouble with it, gets a leg through or something that you can extricate him quickly. And as, as things get out bigger and bigger and bigger, say that 40 acres, you want the fence to be the most visible possible. So if you've got like uh, wire mesh that's not real visible or you have you know electric fence line it's not real visible they're perfectly fine wonderful fences for that great big field you go out and you tie pieces of white sheet on them anything you can do to make them visible the horse in a new situation is often thinking and looking well past where he is looking you know they raise their head to focus way out there they're looking out there um they can run through a fence not having seen it. So you make it so it is very, very visible. It's just this whole thought process. And sometimes Mark will say to me that ah, I'm always thinking about what could go wrong. I'm not doing that like to paint devils on the wall to bring it to us, but I'm thinking about it to prevent it. And even then things happen, but at least you know you've done the best you can. And if you always have a plan, did you know about our that we had a fire? No, no. Uh, I, I didn't know. If I, um, it's been a couple of weeks ago. There was a bushfire, and it came straight for the sanctuary. Right. And it was horrible. It was wind blown, and the flames were leaping as high as the shelters out in the track. And of course, it was burning the fence on the track. And we had this the protocol. We had made a plan for what we would do in an emergency like that, and we just followed that plan. We didn't even have to think. We got all the horses in the giant round yard, which won't burn. It's all pipe fit. We got everybody in. We started getting hoses and trying to get it all put out. It was very frightening, and yet the horses didn't even get scared mm-hmm. because we just mm-hmm. had this rhythm to it. And I, I th- that was real telling for me that the planning ahead, it's not thinking, ooh, everything bad will happen. It's thinking, if this happens, then we'll do that. We we had a bushfire once, but it was in the time when um, I think no horses could be moved in the state because Morbilly, no, it wasn't, it was Hendra, I think. <gasps> oh, yeah. First came, but they didn't quite work out what was causing it, what, so the ruling was that no horses could be moved, but we had a bushfire coming, so, oh my you know, God. we yeah. couldn't have got them all out anyway. Right. Yeah, and I think once you've got a plan and a system, you know, uh-huh. and the horses in, you know, we've sort of got yards and shelters and you just keep the hose going. The worst thing yes. about it is all the smoke afterwards. Smoke. You know, you think, yes. oh, yeah, bushfire's over, we're right now, but you can't breathe because of the smoke. Well, the horses are feeling the same thing, aren't they? You know, exactly. they can't breathe because of the smoke. So you've got to keep that up to them. You can't just say, well, the fire's over, the danger's over because Which there's is, still a danger. There is, and we've had magnesium, uh-huh. Mark yep. and I, because we were down there fighting it. We did our calm, our magnesium yep. supplement yep. for days, and we fed them their magnesium. We upped their doses from the, and then some milk and magnesia on some of them because that helps support that lung health. Mm, mm, mm. That's scary. Yep, yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Catherine, if we, you know, I mean, obviously if I would say to someone, oh, I've got to get a rescue horse, I just feel like I've got to do something, I'd almost say, do you have some sort of a system where you can adopt but you keep the horse there and that horse is yours but you pay all, you know, the bills or the expenses or whatever or a partial adoption? Do you have that or, or not? We've had sponsorships on the horses and we even had back when we could do it, we did what we call sponsor buddy. Mm-hmm. And I think these are really good programs. A person can sponsor a horse by just paying their their costs for the month and you can give them reports about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And we had photos. Some, mm. Yeah. Mm. We had a, the horses we used for lessons and in the uh, therapeutic programs and all horses that could be ridden and handled a lot. We did some sponsor buddy where they would pay each month and would be able to come and interact with that horse when other things weren't going on. And these were very effective, I think, for the people and the horses. It was a different time. There were different horses that um, all of all of those horses were elderly and have since passed on. So we don't have them anymore. But uh, it's hard to believe. But um a rescue can do these, or a sanctuary can do these kind of things, and they are still um, having the public kind of interact. We really uh, harp on the educational outreach because we want to keep horses from needing to be rescued. But everybody would like to help a horse, especially you know a particular horse. I talked about about the fostering, and sometimes I and I worked at other rescues in the, the past and one of them did have people would would foster a horse and they would actually take the horse on and take care of it and it made room for another one at the rescue but rather than committing to adopting that horse they would just take care of it and then if something changed or if an adopter was found then that horse could, could move along and they might foster another I found that brilliant I thought mm-hmm. it was really good but as a rescue or a sanctuary you have got to vet these people like crazy. I mean, not putting anyone down, but someone could come to you with a good heart, the best intentions, but without the background, the knowledge, or perhaps the funds to do it properly. And you just want to feel out where their experience is so that they know what they're getting into. You know, a rescue that uh, brings in a horse in two weeks adopts it out, they don't know anything about that horse. Mm. Yep. And so if if you're adopting a horse that's only been there for two weeks, you're the one that's going to find out all the triggers. You're going to find out all the, pro- the, the problems the vet's going to find, the farrier's going to find. You're the one that's going to take that on. The real job of the rescuer at the sanctuary is to completely know and help and support and nourish this horse to a point where you have a file and, and in this file is enough information that you can, in your heart, know that you are telling people how to take care of this horse, what this horse is gonna need, what you can deduce has happened to this horse. And then you, when you do rescue a horse like that, there's not some huge surprise. There may be little ones, but there's not some huge surprise where you regret ever doing it (laughs) yes you don't want that certainly certainly yeah so before someone adopts a horse from a rescue what would you say to them ah someone comes to me or to any rescue i would say taking a horse on is making a commitment to care for life it may not be that you can take care of this horse for 40 years but you are committed to finding that horse proper care, a proper home when you can't do it. If you are rescuing a horse, you need to take that horse back to the facility, the organization from which you adopted. And if they can't take that horse in, they need to help you find another proper home. A horse is not an object. This is a sentient being. Be prepared to pay more than you ever thought you would have to pay. (laughs) for feed because it constantly goes up. But you can feed a simple diet that provides all of their needs, and we suggest that you stick with simplicity. The more supplements, the more um, composite feeds, the more things you do, the more health problems can be created. Find 
someone as a mentor. It can be the person with the organization where you adopt the horse, but know someone that you can come to with questions. Find every resource on, like say on Facebook, there's um, the horse vet corner. Mm-hmm. There, there are these wonderful where actual veterinarians can answer questions. Find something. There's a poisonous plant one where you can get an identification if something's been ingested. I mean, have in your mind all the possibilities of where to go to help when something becomes an emergency, and then you can feel at ease day to day. And just like us with the the bushfire, we had made a plan and we could feel at ease when that happened as as much as one can in that situation. But what you got to do is know that it's going to be more work than you thought. It's going to cost more than you thought. Um, you're going to have to find professionals like the vet and the farrier to, you know, be advocates for your horse and be you be the advocate for that horse. And it's going to bring you more joy if you set it up right and you find the right horse, more joy than anything else can bring. Yeah, yeah. It's a lovely note to finish on. You know, a lot to think about, but it can, yeah. Okay, Catherine, again, you know, lots of depth, lots of information about that from someone who has not just done it once but has made a lifetime commitment to just rescuing horses and giving them sanctuary. So thank you. We'll look forward to catching up again sometime soon. Thank you, Catherine. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Thank you, Glennis. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below. 